This morning, God's Word comes to us from Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we're going to begin our reading at verse 13 and then read through the end of this chapter. Galatians 5, beginning at verse 13, what we hear now is God's word. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warned you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I invite you to turn to the back of your Trinity Psalter hymnal to page 887 and then also 888 as we look at Lord's Day 32 and the two questions there this morning. We begin near the bottom of page 887. Lord's Day 32, question 86. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ, without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Because Christ, having redeemed us by his blood, is also renewing us by his spirit into his image, so that with our whole lives we may show that we are thankful to God for his benefits and that he may be praised through us. And further, so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Turning over to the top of page 888, question 87. Can those be saved 
who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and unrepentant ways. By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you may notice that we are moving on in our study of the truth of the Word of God as contained for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. We are moving on to the third section, the last section of the Catechism. You remember that there are those three sections we began quite some time ago with section one talking about our sin and our misery, the shortest section of the Catechism. Then we spent the last number of weeks and months in the second section, the longest section, the deliverance section, telling us what God in His Son, Jesus Christ, has done for us. And now we move to that last section, the section on gratitude. It is our response to the glorious grace of God. And I always find it interesting that it is in this section, in the gratitude section, that we have a full explanation of the law of God. The law is not explained for us in the misery section. Now, certainly the law points out our sin, to be sure, but it's not explained there. The law certainly is not explained in the salvation section, as if, if we kept the law, we could then be saved. No, the law is explained in the gratitude section. It is a response to the grace of God. Because we have been saved, how now shall we live? We saw in the earlier part of the Catechism, as we transitioned from part one to part two, that first question somewhat summarized part one and moved us to part two, that first uh, uh, question 12. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? It reminds us of our sin and got us ready for understanding salvation. In a similar way, this first question of the third section summarizes where we have been and prepares us for what's coming ahead. Since we have been delivered from our misery by grace through Christ without any merit of our own, why then should we do good works? Reminding us that salvation is first and last of Christ, but because of what he did, because of his perfect work, why should we now do good works? Or to put it differently, what place do good works have in God's plan of salvation? It is so easy to, to forget and so you're going to hear me say it again and again. Good works are a response. They are a response to what God has done. I teach my, my catechism kids, unless you get that, you will never understand the law. Keeping the law is not unto salvation. Keeping the law flows from salvation. Because we have been saved, because of what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. That, that, that truth 
is reflected even in our own order of worship. Kids, if you look at the liturgy, that's that little paper inside the bulletin that says what the order of the service is, there's a part of that service that is called the service of reconciliation. And what that is, like we did this morning, is we hear a call to confess our sins, recognizing our misery. We hear God's word of pardon, the glorious truth of our deliverance, our salvation. And then, after that, we read the law of God. How then shall we live? So we're going to look at the law in the next coming weeks together and remind ourselves this is because of what God has done. It is the application of the truth of the doctrine of salvation. We go this morning to one of the letters of Paul. And Paul, so often in his letters, follows a similar pattern. He often in his letters will begin by either addressing a problem or teaching some doctrine. And then near the end of that letter, he will say, now in light of all of that, how is it you should live? That's where we're at here in Galatians chapter 5. For you were called to freedom, brothers. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. The context of our walking by the Spirit is because of what Christ has done because of the glorious truth of salvation. Our catechism begins by talking about the, the benefits of the good works that we will keep, reminding us that, that our good works are those things which show our thanksgiving to God, to show we are thankful to God for His benefits, and further, that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits and by our godly living. Our neighbors might be won over to Christ, three benefits of walking according to God's law. Paul says in verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. A reminder that even our walk with God, even our ability to keep the law, comes because God's Spirit is at work within us. None of us in ourselves would have the interest, the desire, and certainly not the ability to keep the law of God. No, but His Spirit is at work, renewing us. And that, that work of the Spirit is, is an inward reality. It's something He does inside of us to change how we live. There's often the charge made of uh, Reformed churches that we have no real doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Because I can assure you there are churches you can go to this morning across uh, San Bernardino County where you will walk in and see incredible manifestations of the Spirit. You will hear people speaking in tongues. You will see them uh, uh, writhing on the floor. You will see all these external manifestations. And then you come to our church. And you're all just sitting there. And people would say, well, don't you guys believe in the Spirit? We most certainly do. The Spirit works inside. Now that will be reflected in our actions. It'll be reflected in how we live. But don't ever think that we don't have a doctrine of the Holy Spirit because we don't see these great external manifestations. 
God is at work within us. God is at work as we gather for worship. God is at work in our daily lives, in our homes, at our offices, in the shop, wherever we are. God is at work by His Spirit changing us so that we might show Him our thanksgiving for what He has done. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. The desires of the Spirit are opposed, are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other. There is that ongoing war, that ongoing battle between the ways of the flesh and the ways of the Spirit. And we see that still in our own lives. We do not live yet the way we would desire to live. We see those sins of the flesh so often still clinging to us. And I hope you are troubled by that. Yes, we are called by God. Yes, we've been saved by God. But the flesh often seems so evident. And that causes us hurt. And that causes us to to confess before God We are not living the way he has called us to. We should expect that conflict. We should expect that ongoing battle. These are opposed to each other, Paul says. In fact, the the fact that we are concerned about that, the fact that it bothers us that we still see sin in our lives, is evidence God is at work. Evidence his spirit is there. If his spirit were not there, we would not care about how we live. No, God calls us every day to thank Him, to praise Him, for He continues to be at work in us. And because of what He has done, we in thanksgiving will live in a way that is pleasing to Him. We'll conform our lives as He gives us His grace and spirit to His holy law. Imagine, kids, that tomorrow, tomorrow for no particular reason at all, your dad came home and gave you a brand new bike. And not just any bike, but a really cool bike. A bike with a light on the front, and a bike with reflectors, and a bike with little things on the spoke so it makes noise when you go. A really, really cool bike. Wouldn't that be cool? And he says, I give this to you just because I love you. For no particular reason, I'm giving you this brand new, really cool bike. Now, I bet, I bet when it came time for bed, you would make sure that your teeth were all brushed on time and you had your last drink of water on time. I bet at the supper table, you would eat all of your broccoli because you want to show Dad how much you love him. Our Father in heaven has given us a gift beyond any bicycle. He has given us life. He has given us life out of death. We deserved his condemnation. But instead, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have his blessing. We have life. And so in our life, We seek to live for him, to show him our thanksgiving. The apostle goes on, verse 18. 
But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, factions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. The works of the flesh, Paul says, are evident. They are obvious. And I'm very hesitant to disagree with the Apostle Paul. But I would ask the question, are the works of the flesh that obvious in the age in which we live? When was the last time you were watching the news and heard a a TV anchor person talk about sexual immorality or about idolatry? We just finished the month of June. Pride month. Pride in what God calls an abomination. And it is lauded all over the TV. Are the works of the flesh that evident, that obvious? I would suggest that we have have deliberately tried to cover them up. We no longer talk about sexual immorality and impurity and sensuality. No, we talk about an alternative lifestyle. We talk about love is love. We talk about being inclusive. Who doesn't want to be inclusive? You know what's inclusive? The gospel is inclusive. It includes absolutely everyone who humbles themselves before Jesus Christ, repents and embraces him as Lord of their life. That's inclusive. Absolutely everyone who recognizes what Jesus Christ has done. We no longer talk about idolatry and sorcery, but rather we talk about New Age religion. Oh, what a wonderful thing, New Age religion. We have taken the sting, we have taken the ugliness out of sin, the evidentness of sin away, because we have changed the way we talk about sin. We don't talk about enmity and strife and jealousy and fits of anger and rivalries. We talk about dysfunctional families. It's important for us to speak in biblical language because God did not come for alternative lifestyles or for different types of religion or for dysfunctional things. God came for sinners, sinners to save. And that is where we get our assurance. It's, it's, it's bad enough when we hear this type of language in the world, but so often we as the church begin to take over those same categories and that same language. We need to speak in biblical categories. God came for sinners. Paul says in verse 22, after talking about this, this, this works of the flesh, he goes on, but the fruit of the Spirit... Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These also must be evident. 
must be evident in the life of the believer. And again, this is fruit. This flows from our salvation. It flows from what God has done. And as we look at these two lists, the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit, again, we see that ongoing battle taking place. And it reminds us that God's work of sanctification in our lives is an ongoing process. We're going to talk about that more next week. Where more and more we say no to the works of the flesh and more and more we say yes to the things of God and showing the fruit of the Spirit. This week is preparation week for coming to the Lord's table. And during that week, we reflect upon our lives to prepare ourselves to come and receive the supper. And when we do so, when we examine ourselves, when we see that there are still the works of the flesh there, that should not keep us from coming. It should remind us of our need to be strengthened at the supper next week when we come. When we see those works of the flesh still evident in our lives, it should cause us sorrow. It should cause us confession. It should cause us to humble ourselves before God. Because it's a reminder that as we do that, God is still at work. He has not left us. And as we see those small glimmerings, those small beginnings of obedience wrought in us by the Holy Spirit, we may be assured of our faith. When we see that in some ways we do begin to live according to the Word of God, it is evidence we belong to Him. And we are assured. We are assured we should be here next week to come to take and eat and take and drink and continually be strengthened by God's Spirit through the elements of bread and wine. God assures us of our faith when we see those spirit-wrought works of obedience in our life. Our confession concludes question 32, excuse me, Lord's Day 32, talking about these three benefits, being thankful to God, being assured of our faith by its fruits, and by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Now we know that when someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, it is the work of God and the work of God alone. But the confession reflects the truth that God uses means to bring people to faith. And at times, those means will be you and your life. It will be the actions, the things that you do that make someone open to hearing the gospel. I trust that you are known to be Christians by your co-workers, by your neighbors. What they learn about God, they will learn from you, looking at your life. What is the message we are bringing to the world. Would they see our life and see that we are believers and say, that's something I want? Not that we have a, a life free of pain, 
a life free of sorrow, but even in those times, we in confidence turn to God who is in control. It may be what people learn about God, everything you learn about God, they will learn from you and watching your life. They will, they will learn about you and about God by how you talk about church, how you anticipate coming to church. Is it something you have to do, something you get to do? So often our coworkers will say, I can't wait for the weekend. I can't wait to go out. And we say, we can't wait for it either because on Sunday, on the first day of the week, we get to go to the house of the Lord. Are we enticing in the way we act, enticing in the way we, 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 things we say about the glory of coming to worship, that others would want to come with us, want to join us? The words that we use is our speech seasoned with grace. Are we bold for the gospel yet gentle with the gospel? Not coarse, not harsh, but bringing the words of life in a direct but loving way. The glorious truth that God has sent his son to earth for sinners and for everyone who embraces Jesus Christ, they too can have that assurance of eternal life. That's the word of the gospel that goes out this morning. If you are here and have not bowed me to Jesus Christ, God calls you today to humble yourself, to repent before him to embrace Jesus and know the assurance of salvation. And then in your life, begin to witness to the truth of who God is and what he has done. If you have coworkers or neighbors that know you are a Christian, they know you belong to church, they know, do they know you belong to this church? And if they ask you, why do you go to that church? There are lots of churches in Chino, lots of churches in Ontario. Why do you go to this church? Do we simply say, well, that's where my parents, grandparents, my family's always gone there? Or do we say, I'm committed to confessionally reformed truth. I'm committed to reverent worship. That will speak about the character of our God. If we say we've gone to church just because we always have, then God is simply a God of tradition. If we say we want to have the truth of God's word, recognizing his awesome character, that speaks of him too. That he is a God who is holy, a God who is righteous, a God who is to be not trifled with. What do we say about God when we talk about our church? Our speech, our actions must be prepared to, to be that which is winsome and may be used by God to win others, all of God's grace and all of his spirit, but to win others to Christ. We are entering into a discussion of the law of God. We will look at that law uh, commandment by commandment. As we do so, I confess it is easy and comfortable to be general with the law of God. It is easy, it is comfortable. But God wants the specific application of his law. And that is not as easy, and it can cause discomfort both for the one hearing the message and the one bringing the message. If the preaching in the next several months makes you uncomfortable, do not blame or do not thank the minister of the word. That is the work of God's spirit. He uses that law 
to confront us with our sin, that we might reject those things, the ways of the flesh put behind us. We might be assured of our faith as we see the Spirit working in us. We might conform ourselves more and more to God's holy standards. Yes, we're called to live according to the law, to do good works. We might show God our thankfulness. We might be assured of our faith. We might witness to others. The apostle says in verse 13, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We were saved. We were given freedom. We might serve our God and serve others. May our lives be a testimony to the glory of God and what he has done in us. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we do thank you for your glorious work of salvation. We recognize, O oh God, that work is yours from first to last. You have called us to be your sons and daughters. And we rejoice in that wonderful truth. Lord God, may our lives reflect the, the reality of that truth as we seek to live for you. Make us thankful in every part of our life. Thankful for your greatest gift of salvation. Lord God, as we do see sin still remaining and yet we are troubled by that, may we be assured you are still at work. Your Spirit is still working in us and be assured of our faith. And Lord God, as you have us encounter those around us, may our words, may our actions be a testimony to them about who you are and what you have done for us. Use us, O oh God, in your service. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to turn to the praise book in the racks in front of you, and near the back of that book on page 44, we're going to read the first portion of the Lord's Supper form. This is on page 44, the institution of the supper. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, let us give full attention to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord as they are delivered by the Apostle Paul. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That we may celebrate the Lord's Supper to our comfort, it is necessary to examine ourselves fully, and further to consider carefully that purpose for which Christ ordained and instituted this sacrament, namely, his remembrance. The true examination of ourself consists of three parts. First, 
let everyone consider, carefully consider their sins and ungodliness, that they may hate their sins and humble themselves before God, considering that the wrath of God against sin is so great that he, rather than leaving it unpunished, has punished it in his beloved Son, Jesus Christ, with the bitter and shameful death of the cross. Second, let everyone examine his heart to see whether they also believe the sure promise of God that all their sins are forgiven only because of the passion and death of Jesus Christ and that the complete righteousness of Christ is imputed and freely given to them as their own, indeed so completely as if they had personally satisfied for all their sins and fulfilled all righteousness. Third, let everyone carefully examine his own conscience to see if they are fully determined to show true thankfulness to God in every area of life and to walk sincerely before his face and whether they with full sincerity strive to lay aside all enmity, hatred, and envy and earnestly resolve from this day forward to live with their neighbor in true love and unity. All those then who are of this mind, God will certainly receive in grace and count as worthy partakers of the table of his son, Jesus Christ. On the contrary, those who do not sincerely believe this testimony in their hearts, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. According to the command of Christ and the apostle Paul, those who know themselves to be engaging in the following sins without repentance have no part in the kingdom of Christ and should therefore abstain from coming to the table of the Lord. Idolaters, those who call upon deceased saints, angels, or any other creature, those who revere images, those who engage in witchcraft, fortune-telling, occult practices, or other forms of superstition, all those who despise God, his word, and his holy sacraments, all blasphemers, those who seek to cause discord, factions, and dissensions in the church or in the state, all perjurers, all who are disobedient to their parents and those in lawful authority, all murderers, contentious people, and those who live in hatred and envy toward their neighbors, all adulterers, fornicators, drunkards, thieves, the greedy, robbers, gamblers, covetous people, and all who lead offensive lives. All those who continue in such sins shall abstain from the Lord's Supper, so that they may feel the weight of God's judgment and condemnation. But this warning is not intended to discourage those believers with contrite hearts, as if no one might come to the Lord's Supper unless they are without sin. We do not come to this supper to testify about our own perfection and righteousness, but on the contrary, we come seeking life in Jesus Christ apart from ourselves. We come confessing our misery, admitting that we have many shortcomings and do not have perfect faith. We also confess that we do not serve God with sufficient zeal, but that we must struggle daily with the weakness of our faith and struggle against the evil lusts of our flesh. However, the grace of the Holy Spirit 
makes us sorry for our shortcomings, gives us the desire to live according to God's commandments, and helps us to fight against unbelief. Therefore, we can rest assured that no sin or weakness that still remains in us against our will can prevent us from being received by God's grace and from being made worthy partakers of this heavenly food and drink. Let's turn now to the Trinity Psalter hymnal and page 116b. Page 116b. I love the Lord, the fount of life and grace. He heard my voice, my cry and supplication, inclines his ear, gives strength and consolation in life, in death. My heart will seek his face. We're going to sing verses 1 and 3. Those are on the first half of the page. And then across the page, verse 7, 9, and 10. So verses 1 and 3 on the first page, and then 7, 9, and 10 on the second page. Let's stand together as we sing 116b.
receive the parting blessing of our God. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Thank you.